everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 132. Thanks so much for joining me. Um, before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. We've been continuous publication since 1995 and are unaffiliated with any other organization. We just do this because we love poetry, and now we do too, so please do click on the like button and share. Make sure you're subscribed. Click the bell for notifications. Leave reviews on iTunes. Leave comments on Facebook. Everything is good. No matter what you can do to uh, spread poetry on the internet is very much appreciated. Today's guest is Marjorie Sacer. We'll be there with her in about 15 minutes. But before we do that, let's go to uh, the Poetry Spawn poems. We had two this weekend. Um, and let's call up the Saturday poet first. This is Mark Grinier, who a lot of the uh, a lot of you will recognize if you're in the chat. Um, Mark Grinier is a regular contributor to the uh, Critique of the Week. And um, let's call up Mark. Hey, Mark, it's Tim with Rattle. How are you doing? I'm doing well, thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad I could join us today. Um, so it, it's great. I was just saying, it's great to uh, publish poets who are regular contributors uh, who participate on our live streams. And so it was cool to, to have this poem of yours, um, Oli- Winter Olympic Games, uh, that we published yesterday. Do you want to explain a little bit about what inspired the poem? Oh, uh, well, I'm, I'm a, a longtime lover of the Olympic Games, and I was, was watching the... Uh, opening ceremonies and whatnot and uh, it just uh you know part of I you know there was putin and g up there in the stands waving their hands as the crowds of athletes came in and and uh you know they brought out a a Uyghur girl she did to, to participate in the ceremonies to show uh their whatever i'm not sure what they're trying to show anyway it struck me as very ironic because uh, as a as a one time athlete myself, I you know I know how much work these athletes put into becoming Olympic athletes and how hard and how you know important it is in their lives. And it just you know that 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 contrast just uh, didn't seem right to me. So I thought, well, I'll just try to pull them out. And yeah. it's a uh, villanelle. <laughs> Yeah, I watched a little bit of the the games. Um, not much. I usually watch more, and it felt like that that feeling that you have. I don't know. I mean, usually I don't pick the poems based on what I can relate to and how I feel, but I felt the same way this time. We have a local, um, you know, we live in a ski resort town, so we have a local athlete who's actually in the Olympics, and uh, uh-huh. so we watched her, and she didn't didn't get the medal, but she you know came close or whatever, and um, so we watched some of that, and it just felt so I don't know, like like soulless or something. There there was something. Um, I don't know. It's not like it used to be. And I don't know if that's just because I'm older or if um, the games have lost their magic or something. I, I, I'm not sure, but it feel, felt like you were putting a finger on it. Um, why did you choose to do it, write it as a villanelle? Well, uh, that's just happened to be, I was, I was given, I'm doing, I'm doing a workshop uh, just to, you know, keep in, in practice. And the assignment was to write a villanelle. So I wrote a villanelle. <laughs> well, there you go. Well, it worked it's great. The, the very first. It's the very first one I ever wrote, so... Uh, very cool. Well, hey, why don't you go ahead and read it, the Winter Olympic Games. Okay. They're mounting yet another impressive show for these Chinese Winter Olympic Games, when cold and false as icy man-made snow. These Winter Games has always hyped the glow of athletes who sacrifice much to make their names the brightest triumphs of this most impressive show. But those who watch the session surely know these games are made to achieve political aims, as cold and false as icy man-made snow. Threats of war in the east and west, 
still grow as Xi and Putin grandstand their imperial claims, but they still provide a most impressive show. It's sad to see bad politics turn feats to no big thing, to obscure them with dead weaker names. They're mounting yet another impressive show when cold and false is icy man-made snow. Yeah, excellent, Villanelle. Thanks so much for sharing that, Mark, and for joining us today. Okay, thank you. Thank you for preparing it. Yeah, my pleasure. Take care. Bye. That was Mark Grinier with Winter Olympic Games, yesterday's poem on Rattle. And now let's call up uh, Wendy Vidalock, who had today's poem. Uh, and Wendy's been a guest on the Rattlecast before. We're going to call her on the phone this time, though. Hello. Hey, Wendy, it's Tim with Rattle, and you are live on the air. So glad you could join us this morning. Hey, Tim. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And it's just great to have you back. It's always, I just always love your work. And it was fun to publish this poem. Uh, when I first saw it, I have to admit that I thought, um, oh, God, not another 13 ways poem, <laughs> which is probably the, the um, you know, most overdone trope in all of um, poetry, maybe, that to, to do knockoffs. But it was such a wonderful poem once I read it. Um, and you had a lot of fun with it, too. Do you want to talk a little bit about what, what inspired the poem? I think, I don't know if everybody saw the video um, of the birds um, falling or, or flying into the ground, more accurately, that was um, mm. captured in New Mexico. But that was the inspiration mm -hmm. for this poem. Do you want to describe it? Oh, my goodness. Well, first of all, let me say that, I mean, I never thought I would write one of those 13 ways poems either. Um, there are so many of them, and the original is so darn beautiful. Um, but something about this particular imagery, uh, well, I first started writing, you know, just a kind of a list of all the different ways that people were interpreting this bizarre event. Um, and then I found myself almost channeling him. So it was almost as though um, the the idea, you know, came sort of as the poem was sort of taking form. And as I was writing it, as I sort of went, okay, I'm just going to surrender. I never thought I'd do this, <laughs> you know, but how could I not? Because here we have these blackbirds and they're not just blackbirds, but they're yellow headed. And the story itself is is fascinating and disturbing and um but the response to it the perception of it is what really was was sort of you know floating around in my head and just wouldn't let go and i think that that's kind of how wallace stevens kind of saw the, that there's a million different ways to look at one event or one scene or one blackbird um, and that that was kind of, I mean, I really started to admire him so much more as I was working through the sequence, um, especially when I got to around six or seven, because I realized that as a poet, it would be so easy to go down other tracks when you get to that six or seven, that, that track that the mind just wants to go, okay, we've done this, now it's time to do seven will look like this, and eight will look like this, and nine will look like that, and how he just at every turn didn't go in the direction that um, that would seem to be the way to go. Um, and so I just kind of, I, I mean, I haven't, I think I wrote the poem less than 24 hours ago. It's the fastest turnaround in a poem, Tim, by the way, I've ever had. Um, but I, um, I've done nothing but read Wallace Stevens since I wrote that poem because my, my respect for him has just gone um, through the roof. Yeah, it was Wallace Stevens that made me fall in love with poetry, actually. That snowman, the snowman. Um, 
is the first poem mm. I actually loved. And I, I used to um, shovel driveways and sidewalks at our apartment complex. It was my first job when I was like 13 or so. And and I'd mm-hmm. recite that poem as I was shoveling. And that was kind uh, of what, what led me to love poetry. And then all of his other poems are amazing too, of course. But in 13 Ways is one of the, one of the best. I mean, it's just imminently quotable. And uh, I mean, also, I start to think that it's kind of an Ars Poetica, that he's really laying out um, what poetry does, how it changes the way we see things, how it widens our view, you know, the nothing that is not there and the nothing that is from the snowman. Um, I used to have great difficulty with when I was young. I was always sort of fighting against that nothingness mm-hmm. and and now I'm just going that that's it right there. <laughs> yeah. It's a beautiful yeah. I love the shoveling snow to that poem. That's awesome. Well, do you wanna do you wanna read the poem? Thirteen ways of looking at a yellow headed blackbird. Okay. I happen to have it right here. Okay. All right. So um it starts with the headline from Newsweek, which is hundreds of birds fall dead in shocking footage sparking wild conspiracy theories. 13 ways of looking at a yellow-headed blackbird. One, the sky is falling. Two, across a dozen hungry nations, it was a large part of the conversation. Three, in the small northern town of Chihuahua, nothing is falling except a thousand yellow-headed blackbirds. Four, I was of 10,000 minds and 20,000 wings. Five, the yellow-headed blackbird and the fall and the melting sun swept across the inside of the eye's horizon. Six, I do not know which is more disturbing, the murmur or the sudden slaughter, Moses or the waters parting. Seven, Said the falcon in Chihuahua, there was only one yellow-headed blackbird. Eight. Said the sweeper of the street in Chihuahua, there were 50,000 yellow-headed blackbirds. Said the merchant, there was no time to process 3,000 bolts of electricity or the satellite with its scraping sound. Nine. Said the yellow-headed blackbird, there is the question of the sky, the answer of the earth, and the fiery swoop of following the leader. Said another, there is also the unforgiving pavement and its unquiet people. Ten. Oh, peering little hungry ghost, why do you sleep? Why do you steep in your gardens? filled with grievances. Do you not see you are the yellow-headed blackbird, the water that is parting, the starving conversation? 11. I cannot stop thinking about shadows. As the yellow-headed blackbird stammers and pitches and wings out of sight, the falcon has filled his belly. We watch from our gardens, remaining peaked and hungry. 12. The winter is dying. The spring must be dreaming of yellow-headed blackbirds. 13. It was auburn all afternoon, and all the trees were purple. The words had turned to scarlet, 
and the story crept under the bed. The yellow-headed blackbird, wet-feathered and sky-laden, lay curled inside her egg. Hmm. Yeah, just a beautiful poem. Thanks so much, Wendy, for sharing that and, uh, and joining us today to read it, because I, I, just, I just loved it. Uh, it. You know, sometimes you read poems and, and the lines just stand out and stick with you forever, and that has so many great ones. Uh, thanks for sharing it. Hmm. Thank you so much, Tim. Yep, have a good day. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. It was Wendy Vinalock with 13 Ways of Looking at a Yellow-Headed Blackbird. And I was thinking as, as we were talking that um, the 13 Ways isn't the most knocked off. It must be the plums, you know. Um, William Carlos Williams' plums. Or maybe the wheelbarrow. Those are probably the most knocked off poems in English. Um, but let's go to uh, take a little break. We're going to go to our main guest, Marjorie Sacer. Um, so we will be going to put up some music and we will be right back. back. Thanks for your patience. And today's guest is Marjorie Sacer. She's the author of six books of poetry and co-editor of two anthologies. Her work's been published in American Life and Poetry, Nimrod, Rattle All the Time, Poetry Magazine, Rhino, Chattahoochee Review, Poetry East, Poet Lore, and other journals. She's received the Willow Award uh, and nominations for the Pushcart Prize. Marjorie is the author of 10 books of poetry, including um, the latest book of New and Selected, The Track the Whales Make. And here she is, Marjorie Sacer. Hey, Marjorie, how you doing? I'm doing great. It's great to see you. I, I remember when you came to um, our poetry reading here in Los Angeles, maybe four years ago or so. Um, so it's really cool to see you again. I'm, I'm so glad we can do these uh, live streams so we get to talk to everybody and see everybody as new books come out. And uh, you've got a new and selected out. Well, I'll put it on screen here, the track the whales make. So congratulations on that, first of all. Well, why don't you go ahead and read one of them? What do you want to start with? Each wrong choice was a horse I saddled. I rode a little way down the road, got off and saddled another, got better at saddling, faster at getting on board. Some of my best days, like today, all I can do is hang on, the animal beneath me galloping in some direction I can't fathom, my eyes shut, my ragdoll body flopping, no stirrups, no reins, my fingers in the mane. My most recent egregious error, trying so hard to buck me off. <laughs> that was each wrong choice was a horse I saddled uh, from the track the whales make. Sorry, I had you on mute for the first couple seconds. So so sorry, everybody at home, but uh, we fixed that. And um, so so uh, one of the things I love about your work, I, I just always do, I, I feel like you're um, one of the, I, I have this sort of category of poets. It's like the classic rattle poet. Um, which is very honest and open about life and very straightforward sort of a sense of storytelling and narrative driven poetry that, that really the, the feel of your work is that you get to sort of sit and spend time with the actual Marjorie Sacer. There's no affectation. There's no, um, you know, there's no like stances there. It's just you very honest and authentic and real, which is what I love. I love about your work. And I think that's what Ted Kuger says in the uh, great introduction that he wrote for the book, too. Um, and the, another cool thing about looking through this new and collected is that your voice sort of stays the same throughout the 20 plus years that this book covers. Um, can you talk a little bit about that, about what your style is and what, what draws you to a certain kind of poetry? Well, you mentioned storytelling. Um, uh, we had a cafe, my folks had a cafe and we had our bedrooms in the back. 
So I sort of lived in a cafe, and there's a lot of storytelling that goes on over pie and coffee. And uh, some, uh, I'm sure, some good good lying, too. So uh, I've always liked storytelling. My mother was a storyteller. Um, so that's, and, and I'm interested in people's lives. Um, what, you know, especially like where they come from, how it's different from mine, uh, how it might sometimes feel the same. So that's the kind of, of poetry I like to read, find out about somebody. And, um, I, yeah, like you say, I, I write about the ordinary. Yeah. I always feel like, um, like, like we're each our own universe, like, like literally because the, you know, light that can reach us it can only, you know, reach where we exactly are at this moment or something. There's this weird way that we actually are our own universe. And then you get to glimpse into other universes through poetry, which is just a wonderful thing um, that I that I love about it. Like you love you get to see inside someone else's world, which is not exactly the same as your world. And uh, and that's just the wonderful thing about it. Um, so what is speaking of, of backgrounds? Uh, what, how is it that you got into poetry? Where, where did you find it? Um, well, Nebraska Wesleyan University, um, uh, William Clef Corn helped, uh, a lot of people so much by, um, encouraging a lot of people to write and, um, uh, to, uh, I think one of his gifts was to see what maybe your poem was trying to do. He wasn't trying to clone his own poetry, but what your poem might be trying to do and maybe, um, steer you towards, um, you know, why don't you read Marge Piercy or why don't you read so-and-so and, and see how they're doing what you're trying to do. And you're going, I didn't even know what I was trying to do. <laughs> so, um, so that, and, uh, oh, I remember I was at the university of Nebraska and, uh, a poet there, Greg Kuzma was reading on stage. I went to his reading and he was reading about his wife eating a peach and I thought, wow, this this is poetry. You can write about somebody eating a peach. And years and years later, I told him about that. And he couldn't remember the poem. I said, what poem is that? What book is that? He couldn't remember it. Oh, wow. Um, do you want to read another poem? Do you want to read? Uh, I don't know. What do you want to read next? Oh, how about 50? Um, um when life seems a to-do list. And you can put me on mute again if you... <laughs> no, I won't. Uh, when life seems a to-do list. When the squares of the week fill with musts and shoulds. When I swim in the heaviness of it, the headlines, the fear and hate. Then with luck, with something like a slice of moon will arrive clean as a bone. And beside it, on that dark slate, a star will lodge near the cusp. And with luck, I will have you to see it with, the two of us, fools, stepping out the back door in our pajamas. Is that Venus? I think so. Let's call it Venus, cuddling up to the moon. And there are stars farther away, sending out rays that will not reach us in our lifetimes. But we are choosing, before the chaos starts up again, to stand in this particular light. And that was When Life Seems a To-Do List from the new uh, The Track the Whales Make. 
Um, and since I since I had you on mute, um, let's talk again about about putting together a new and selected book. Like, how do you decide when it's time for new and selected? And, and you mentioned that that you had friends who helped you um, choose the poems. But um, but how does that go about? Like, what is the process of putting a book like this together? And, and like, just how do you know, you know, what you want to save and what you don't? Oh, wow. I don't know. I don't know. And um, I think part of, of what helps, at least helped me, was readings because um, over the course of time from these other books, you're reading poems. And you get to know, I think what you like to read and maybe people give you feedback on poems and uh that's very helpful so yeah and and um i i think it's kind of confusing about what book this is for some reason like on my website which needs to be updated very very seriously um i don't know how many books it says but this is my eighth book Mm -hmm. um and um I have three chapbooks, and then I helped co-edit a couple of anthologies. So re- that's reading a lot of poems, not as many as you read. <laughs> I don't know how you do it. I don't know how you read so many poems, keep track of, of stuff. But um, anyway, to, to put together a, a new and selected is, um, yeah, I worked on it after uh, – Ted asked me, asked me, uh, said, would you like to do this? I said, yeah. Um, so I worked on it and then I left it for a while and came back, I mean a month. And then I came back and, you know, started again. It's sort of like deciding what you're going to read at a reading. You go by instinct, but you don't really know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't even notice that, um, that this is a, I'll put it on the screen here. This is a, um, a Ted Kuzer imprint, Ted Kuzer Contemporary Poetry. I didn't realize that at the University of Nebraska. How long has he been doing that? A um, couple of years. Uh, I don't know. Well, it's really cool to uh, to have this book. Um, and uh, Can you talk about, about the title? Like, why did you pick the tracks the whales make is the title? I guess I picked that because um, I like that poem. It's one I know by heart. I uh, I'm so nervous I couldn't do it right this minute, but, um, and it seems, and it's about love, uh, and about wanting to keep from losing love. Mm -hmm. And so that seems like kind of a a theme that I'm interested in. So, um, and then it's, it's an image, you know, that big ring on the top of the ocean when a whale dives. So, um, that that appealed to me. Do you want to read that poem? Okay. Let's see. That is uh, 67. Okay. When you want love to really last. The track the whales make. You and I on the boat notice the track the whales leave. The huge ring they're diving draws for a moment on the surface. I want to believe when we can no longer walk across a room for a hug, can no longer step into the arms of the other, there will be this, some delicate trace that stays. And below, out of sight, dark mammoth shadow, flick of flipper, body of delight, diving deep. And I mentioned uh, memorizing and... uh, 
and I changed a word because I'm, I have one I've memorized. Memorizing really seemed to help me a lot because I would know what to get rid of because it didn't tr it didn't flow off my tongue, and um, so I'm sure people have told you this. It's different when you're reading it and you've got it on the screen. Oh, uh, let's see, which way shall I go with that word? <laughs> you you keep you keep revising. I love revising. Yeah, well, people might have even noticed uh, when Wendy Vidalock read her. Um, her poem earlier to start out the show, um, she changed a few lines just in the twenty in the twelve hours since uh, since she submitted it. So, you know, and then there's that famous story of I can't remember who would go through the bookstores and, and add commas in certain places <laughs> every time he found his book. I can't remember who that was, but um, but yeah, for sure they all um, end up there. For me though, because I memorize, um, it sort of eventually fixes the poems into place. You know, because there's a way. Um, you know, th there's a way that the poem just is like it is its own object once you commit it to memory, um, which I just always do in the process of writing by accident. It, it seems to me, is that how it works for you? Because you, you go over and over it, don't yeah. you? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you just read so it so many you, times, you know it. <laughs> you memorize too. Wow, this is incredible. I don't know how you, uh, uh, hmm. I don't know how you do it. Well, I don't memorize other people's poems, but just when I'm reading my own, you know, you re yeah. read it over and I read it, you know, not necessarily out loud in my, but in my head, sub vocalizing. So I'm hearing my own voice at the pace I would read it. And that just sort of gets, it's like a song that gets ingrained in you. And yeah. then if someone sings, you know, if Bob Dylan sings the wrong verse, you're like, hey, you skipped a verse. <laughs> you know? So there's always that. Um, so, uh, so Eric Campbell is here. He says, uh, Marjorie is one of the best Nebraska poets in that her work, while grounded in place, is never limited by it, um, which I thought was just a wonderful, a wonderful way to put it, because it's so true. It feels very Nebraska, but then the Nebraskaness opens up into something more broad. Can you talk a little bit about place, about, about how it, what it means to be a Nebraska poet and, um, and, and what your place is there? Well, Eric, Eric, thank you for that. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, well, you know, um, right now I'm in Arizona. Love the desert. Love the colors, the cactus, the, the sky. Um, and it's great to rock back and forth between the desert and the grasslands in Nebraska. Well, and I think one thing about the grasslands um, is that open feeling and that's, that sky and the wind, um, the prairie rivers are just, they meander, they, um, yeah. So every place does have its, uh, its the, whatever it can, whatever you, you really um, get, get to love. And um, so I think one thing that I, and I, we were talking earlier about how you, you love when somebody shows you what their life is like and also their place, because it's so interesting to see these other places that I haven't been and see them through the eyes of someone who loves them or hates them or whatever it is. Um, there's a, there are a lot of uh, poets writing in Nebraska and, um, and it's, um, you know, so it's a wonderful community. Yeah, I always wonder about that because it's it's a it's definitely feels like a state that has more poetry going on than other 
most other states really there's you know there's certain pockets in different places and um but nebraska is one of the big the big areas why do you think that is i mean you know the iowa has the iowa workshop and all that but but mm-hmm. um and nebraska has the university of nebraska so those sort of sort of act as hubs um but what is it do you think that makes poetry uh, popular in, in that region yeah, somebody should should write about that, and and probably have. Uh, well, for instance, uh, Lark Song Writer's Place in Nebraska. It's a physical place in Lincoln, but it's also uh, online, and it it's building community. It's uh, have a look at it. It's good classes, great classes from time to time that you can sign up for, and then also uh, freebie stuff, you know, readings and that kind of thing that fosters uh, writing, uh, not just poetry, but uh, writing in general. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm, I'm very grateful for, for Lark Song. Yeah, it feels like that the communities build slowly and just accrue, you know, like they have their own gravity. So they're attracting more people and then it becomes its own like constellation or something or solar system, I guess is a... To, to not mix the metaphors, but, um, but yeah, Nebraska just feels like that. And Prairie Schooner too, of course, is a great resource. And, and I love the image of the, I think that's my favorite journal name, Prairie Schooner, the idea of like some kind of schooner ripping across the prairie with the wake in the wheat fields or something like that. It's just a beautiful image for it, for a title. Um, Let's see. So if anybody has any questions for Marjorie, um, I'll pass them along. So leave them in the chat windows, either on Facebook or YouTube. And I have one question here from Cindy, which we'll get to in a second. But let's hear another poem first. Okay. And, you know, it's what you do with Rattle, like the people on today and, and other times. It's a, a feeling of community that somebody, somebody wants me to keep going. Hmm. Um, 60. 60. And here's another image for you before I forget this, not about the poem, but I belong to a group, um, of a critique group. Uh, we call ourselves the prairie trout. So <laughs> think of those trout swimming through that tall prairie grass. Oh, that's wonderful too, yeah. Okay, page 60, about that smart, thinly veiled stuff. Uh, parents, at least, at least I, we often think we can get away with giving advice. Uh, when we ought to just probably shut up. About that smart, thinly veiled stuff. That smart, thinly veiled stuff, I said to my daughter. My admiration was real as eggs in the nest, but my goal was to save her. I wonder if my mother, too, had that intent. Let me, in the time I have left, love my daughter and keep my hands off. Let me say a simple thing and mean a simple thing. Let a word be a round pebble passed from one hand to another, a little weight in the palm, not a burden, not a door, not a justification, not advice covered up with a blue scarf. Let me love her as a bird might value the tree and the rain. Yeah, beautiful. I love those last lines. Let me love her as a bird might value the tree and the rain. That's from About That Smart, Thinly Veiled Stuff. Again, from the track The Whale's Name. Probably should have a dash, uh, a hyphen between thinly and veiled, don't you think? <laughs> um, do you have a, I don't think you do, actually. When there's a, an adverb, I think there's no hyphen. 
Although we have a great proofreader who who corrects everything, but I do believe you don't hyphenate an adverb. So I think it's good. Ah, okay. <laughs> Very good. Um, Learn something every day. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, I, I, I'm clueless. That's one of the things I wish I was better at was uh, the copy editing stuff so I wouldn't have to. But we outsource it to someone who is very good professional copy editor, um, which is why if you people notice the um, the poems that are just online don't get copy edited. So there, there are typos in there <laughs> much more often that people have to call out and, and fix me on. Um, so, so the question from Cindy Gore here, um, she asks, is there anything in particular you read or do for times when you feel uninspired to write? And that's a question too. I, you know, being a poet of, um, of the sort of the simple moment, I guess. And, and, you know, it's, it feels like your poetry is all around you. Do you ever get un, uninspired? And, and if you do answer Sydney's question, um, you know, what do you read or what do you do when you do feel uninspired? If you do. Yeah. Oh, good question, Cindy. Um, and we're always, aren't we, looking for a, a way to uh, fix that or whatever, um, because it does go up and down. And uh, last week I started writing uh, every day. Well, I, I write every day, but a lot of a lot of times it's journal, and that's good. But it's junk, and that's good. You have to get rid of that, get that out of the top of the the bottle, so to speak. But um, then last week. Um, I, and I'd write same time in the morning. Mornings are good for me. And I would, uh, you know, I would get something. I'd get a lump of clay that I could shape into a poem. And that felt so good because it had been kind of a dry spell when you're, uh, I don't know, you get into what I call po-biz and you're, you like it. Mm -hmm. Um, but it, it, uh, might take, uh, at least for me, it, it does sometimes take me away from, writing the poems. But then another thing that takes me away from writing the poem is I have this blank sheet. I start out on a sheet of paper and then I have to get it onto the screen right away and, and uh, type it up and work with it. But um, you, you have this idea, I have to write a poem and that will sometimes keep you, I think, or keeps me from writing, getting started. Um, my process uh, uses or it involves what I call a um, an on ramp. I have to have an on ramp, but that doesn't belong in the poem later. That that's not the interstate. That's the on ramp, and it falls away later. Um, it was necessary, but it's not necessary to the poem. Well, um, I think what helps me, and I've heard other people say, is to find the time of day that works for you, late at night, whatever. And, and show up there as often as you can. Um, and then um, you, you'll sometimes snag something and sometimes not. But um, at least you're there. The muse then um, says, look at this person sitting there again today. I'll give him something. <laughs> So, so what is your process like once the, the muse gives you something? Um, uh, how do you, you know, that, I love that metaphor of the on-ramp because I feel it too. I feel, I always think of it as like a kite. Like, you know, you have to wait for a gust of wind and you're kind of running. And, and then sometimes it takes off and then it flops right to the ground. And then sometimes it takes off and it soars. And once it soars, you're like running with it or something. Um, so, so what is that process like? To me, it has to do with the sound. Like, I think I have to find the sound of the language that I'm using or the voice that the poem wants or something, and then the poem can talk. Is it like that for you? Is that what you mean by the on-ramp? 
Oh, yeah, that is so good. That's perfect. Yeah. And so you can tell, um, so you can't make it happen. It's not a faucet. It's a kite. <laughs> um, but but you, uh, you can stop it by, um, you know, not paying attention. Can I read? Okay, I'm going to read uh, The Muse. It's 151. Perfect, yeah. It's the muse is the kite. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, 151. Because the muse doesn't hit you overhead with with a two by four. Well, maybe, maybe sometimes, but usually it's just a little scratch hmm. that you can ignore. But it's also a powerful horse to ride. The muse is a little girl. The muse is a little girl, impossibly polite. She arrives when you're talking or walking away from your car. She's barefoot. She stands next to you, mute. She taps your sleeve, not even on your skin, just touches the cloth of your plaid shirt, touches it twice with her index finger, and you keep talking or you don't. She will wait one minute she is not hungry or unhappy or poor. She goes somewhere else unless you turn and look at her and write it down. Or maybe she's a horse you want to ride. She's a tall horse. She's heavy, as if she could bear armor. You can't catch her with apples. I don't know how to get on. I remember my cold fingers grasping the black mane. Yeah, beautiful poem. The muse is a little girl, um, and I love. I mean, it's a, it's just an example of. I mean, everything is an example of the way you write, which is this this beautifully simple and and direct imagery um, that just flowers up. Um, so so once you have have the muse and and you're you're sort of catching on on ramp. Like, how does the actual creation of the poem work? Like, what do you do? Um, do, do you write it out? You said you write it by hand and then you shape it later on the computer. Is that how your mm -hmm. writing process goes? So are you writing lines of poetry? Like, do you know that the sort of shape is you're going or do you like shape it later? How, how does that work? Well, sometimes it does seem to, ha to have places where the line will break. And um, also, I think a big part of my process is getting rid of taking out it's like it's clay, and then you have to carve away to see the real thing that's there. You have to have the clay, the free write, and uh, then carve it away and um, get rid of what doesn't, um, of what's what's kind of covering up or hiding what what needs to be there. And that happens. Yeah, I print it out and work with a printed sheet and cross out and move around because sometimes the end shows up in the middle hmm. and you know then you you draw the arrow and move it down and um you get rid of a lot of stuff at the at the beginning um uh, dick westheimer mentioned the um, the ending of that poem he said um, i love the open-ended ending so trusting um and that was um you know i don't know how to get on I remember my cold fingers grasping the black mane. So in that poem in particular, how did you know that that was the ending? Uh, was it, it was that in the middle like you just mentioned? Or, or did you write to that point and realize? How did that happen, if you remember? I don't remember. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
What, but do you know, um, just in general, like what you're looking for in an ending? Because um, some people, I, I've talked to people about endings before, and some people love the sort of, you know, so the sort of click type ending, like the sort of epiphany, like, like ah, you know. And then some people don't like that and like the um, understated, like more open, which is what, what Dick was referencing here of, the, of that poem. Um, so is there a sort of ending that you like or, or how do you know like what the ending should be for a poem? I mean, it's always something that we, we struggle with, I think. What I've been writing lately is not a click. And um, um, so I think, yeah, things change, don't they, over time. But so you you want this satisfying feeling, but maybe uh, maybe you shouldn't have the satisfying feeling. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's hear another one. Um, okay, thirty three and thirty four. Okay. Um, all of us, or many of us, have a, a teacher, somebody who made a difference in our lives. And it could be a teacher or it could be um, an uncle, grandmother, uh, someone who believed that you were worth something. And uh, this is called, To the Author I'm Reading at Night. Because of the way words sound in the room when I am sitting up in bed reading, I read aloud your tribute to your teacher, how she saved you. And knowing that someone somehow saved her, and someone saved her, and so on up the ladder. Not tribute exactly, more than that. And my voice takes a timbre, a quality from solitude. I feel I could understand my mother, how she loved in a crooked, sparkly, foolish, deep way. And I have that in me, too. My time in the cone of light my dog on the end of the bed licking his paw and knowing nothing, like me, of hate circling the planet. I'm forgetting it on purpose and enjoying this yellow lamplight because someone, your compassionate teacher, saved you and you pass it on, black letters in a string, string after string, to me. Someone alone in a chamber noise of traffic outside the walls, nothing but night in the window, someone you don't know reaching for the rope of that connection. And that was to the author I'm reading at night. And can you talk a little bit about, about teaching? Because you have taught for a long time. Um, did you teach creative writing? I did. I taught creative writing to uh, kids. Oh, really? Uh, and once in a while, I would be invited to uh, come into somebody's class at the university or at Nebraska Wesleyan. And so, so that was uh, fun too. And I think, um, and, and then one thing that that's been so important to me is, uh, you know, I got uh, at, at the university of Nebraska with a, a master's degree in creative writing, you get a lot, a lot of critique, which is good. But then, um, my husband and I would uh, go somewhere for a week, and I'd have uh, a class for a week with uh, uh, Sharon Olds or Dorian Lux or Mark Doty. And um, that kind of teaching, and especially Sharon Olds, the kind of teaching was um, 
okay, uh, you guys go away for a couple hours and come back. You go down to the beach or you go to the cafe, and then you come back with a poem Mm -hmm. and read it to us. We won't look at it because it's still in your notebook, but we'll hear it and we'll tell you what we hear. And that kind of teaching was really, really helpful to me. Hmm. When you say you, you taught kids, what ages did you, do you mean? Um, I taught a lot of fourth grade and fifth grade, which is great. Um, well, they all have their certain uh, qualities. And I taught, I was asked then one time, my principal came down and said, I'm going to have you teach third grade next year. And I went gulp. <laughs> but I did. And I got out my uh, puppets and, you know, I had fun there. And then seventh and eighth grade, ninth, that was it. Do you find, you know, I've always um, been sort of amazed by the Young Poets Anthology that we do, that um, it, it feels like kids are so, um, and, and actually there's a Sharon Old quote that we um, we always use at the beginning of that, um, where she says, what does she say? Uh, I can pull it up. She says, um, there's not a bad poet in the first grade. None of them are anything but fresh and original. They don't know how to avoid being original. And I just love that because I found that it was so true as we do these young poets issues. And then they eventually get to like puberty or something hits <laughs> and they lose that sort of original magic or they're, they're self-conscious instead and, um, and start thinking about like how people are going to think about what they say. Whereas I think when they're in fourth and fifth grade, they don't think about what people are going to think about what they say. And that's what makes them like wonderful poets. Do you find that, that, that they sort of lose that magic as they get older? Oh yeah, that was that's true. They there isn't a bad poet in those classrooms until I don't know what happens exactly, but it's too bad. Yeah. Um so um so do you think um you know I always think that poets are trying to find that place that we had in the 4th grade where everything was magic. Um and and you know we could say whatever we wanted. Do you do you f- try to find that place as a poet? Is that something that you strive for? Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, it's sort of like uh, painting, which I don't do very well and don't do very much. But yeah, you want to paint that same way. Yeah. And you don't know how anymore. How did I do that? Yeah, yeah. Um, let's see. So um, um, Ross Golata asks about, you mentioned journals. Um, and he asked, um, do you get poems from your journal? Or, or is that just separate writing? Like, do you do you write journal entries and then that becomes a poem? I'm not very orderly at all. So I have like six or eight notebooks, um, just spiral notebooks writing in. And, um, and then, yeah, sometimes I'll be writing and you can tell, I can tell. It's sort of like the uh, cruise control takes over and you start writing faster. Mm. Oh, this is, this is, uh, this is alive here. And the rest of the journal is useful, too, because you're finding out or I I find out what I think, what I need to do, how I'm fooling myself or whatever. But but then sometimes there'll be a poem that that uh, happens in that mishmash and it takes off and you're writing fast and you don't know where it's going. That's that is such a good feeling. Yeah, it really is. And it's interesting you mentioned writing fast because I interviewed uh, James Pennebaker in the winter issue, the psychologist from the University of Texas who does um, um, writing is healing. He does all the research on that. And one of the things he mentioned that I didn't even realize um, uh, from his books was that 
that he could tell um, when people sort of got into the zone or whatever it is that that zone of proximal whatever, um, where you're you sort of accessing the parts that you didn't know you know or whatever, um, and he can tell the difference in their handwriting when when they're sort of forcing it versus when they're they're running on a stream of consciousness kind of thing and tapping into whatever deep thing. Do you, do you notice that too? Your handwriting changes even. Oh yeah, I I can still almost read it, but. Uh, <laughs> Is is that the guy that also said that it helps if you write about trauma, you don't have to tell it, you don't have to read it to anybody, mm-hmm. but to have written it changes the trauma for you. Yeah, exactly. That's his whole whole thing is that he had students who would um you know come in the, the first semester of college and they'd write about their worst experiences um and then they didn't have to share it to anybody. He'd even say like burn the thing after you're done, mm-hmm. like plan on getting rid of it, but just write it down and then um and then measured um, how many times they went to the health office was the first first test to use because it was so easy. And then he ended up doing like serum levels and things and finding their T cell counts were higher. This amazing research back in the 80s. Um, and and so it's fascinating to talk to him for the issue. But that seems like what that's what we all do with poetry is we we sort of are. I mean, people hate saying that poetry is therapy, but we're kind of doing self-therapy. If you consider Pennebaker's work on therapy, which is um, finding ways to construct and make sense of the things you've been through. That's what writing really is. And so that's what that's what we're doing, right? And why shouldn't writing be good for you? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it really is. And I wonder if, um, I don't know, I mean, you could do another study. I wonder if the, um, you know, COVID outcomes are better for poets than they are for, for other people because we have higher T-cell counts because we don't keep secrets and, and write about our trauma. I don't know. It's, it's possible. Um, anyway, let's, let's hear another poem. And another thing that that's good about writing is then, you know, sometimes groups coalesce around you or, or you pull them around you because of the writing. And and groups have been really important to my writing process. Um, I belong to a couple of groups. Uh, trios are good um, and they come and go. They're they're just great. And then they kind of evaporate. Well, that's OK. Mm-hmm. But, um, y- you know, because you you take turns. Okay. It's my turn. I'll, here's a poem I came across this week and I'll read it to you. And then your assignment is, it's what you do. You said the assignment this week was to write about an ancestor. Mm -hmm. And so then, then we go away from the, we usually do this on zoom. We go away from the screen for a half an hour and write something. And sometimes it's in opposition to the assignment. The assignment was to write about, uh, whatever. I'll, okay. I'll write about the ocean. I don't care. And and you you get that kind of uh, you get the bit in your teeth or whatever. But but so the trios are good. And then um, I have a couple of groups that are critique groups, and um, that's it's so useful. Even sometimes it's not the critique that's so useful, but the um, the fact that you read it to a different ear, mm-hmm. so you're hearing it differently. Like you're hearing it like an editor might hear it or something. Yeah. Um, just to read it to your to your group and uh, feedback is sometimes really good, but sometimes you don't even need that. Well, um, so we, I was supposed to. Where was I? <laughs> I don't know. I think we're gonna, we've been talking for a while. Let's do another poem. This one. Um, OK, this one deals with love. Um, page 68 and 69. She gives me the watch off her arm. 
My mother wants me to go to college. The closest she has ever been is this, the dorm. Her father had needed her to dig the potatoes and load them into burlap bags. But here she is, leaving her daughter on the campus in the city, time to go. We are at the desk. The clerk is wide-eyed when my mother asks her if she will take an out-of-town check, if the need arises, if something comes up, so my girl will have money. Even I know this isn't going to happen, this check cashing, a clerk helping me with money. But miracle of miracles, the clerk says nothing, and I say nothing, and my mother feels better. We go to the parking lot, old glasses, thick graying hair. She is wearing a man's shirt, has to get back to the job. We stand beside her Ford, and it is here she undoes the buckle of the watch and holds it out to me. My father's watch, keeping good time for him and then for her. She says she knows I will need a watch to get to class. We hug, and she gets in, starts the car, eases into traffic, no wave. The metal of the back of the watch is smooth to my thumb, and it keeps, for a moment, a warmth from her skin. That was, she gives me the watch off her arm. And one of the things I didn't think about about your work until I read um, mostly the blurbs on the back, were how much your poems are about love. And, um, and I never occurred to me, but once I, once somebody pointed that out, I, I just see it again and again. It is true. It seems like the central theme or the, the varying kinds of love and exploring those relationships. Um, so is, is that something that you do you do intentionally or is it something you're drawn toward, um, without realizing it? Um, how, how do you, how do you encounter love in your poetry? Yeah, those blurbs from Peggy Shoemaker and Hilda Raz, um, two people who really encouraged me and and um that feeling of somebody believes in you go ahead and and keep going um and and it is my material i'm interested in uh, relationships mm -hmm. and relationships have to do with love and and uh, the loss of it the lack of it the shape of it but I think uh, I'd have to say I don't choose my material. I choose to use my material, but that's my material. That's what I'm interested in. Everybody has their, their material, uh, what, what encompasses what they have that they want to, to work on. And somebody's always going to be telling you, oh, don't write about that. <laughs> or don't write again about that. Mm -hmm. But that's your material. So I say go for it and... Uh, and write about it. And when you're writing about uh, relationships, then you have that sticky thing also of um, you are taking your take on somebody else. And uh, is that fair? Mm -hmm. you know? So that's kind of a big question, too. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, actually, is that do you do you censor yourself and worry about what people are going to be? I mean, some poets say, don't censor yourself at all. 
you know, this is my honest truth. If you're in my life, you're a, you're a character in my story. Um, so you know that going in and some, some poets say, um, I wish I could remember who said what, but, but one poet said, um, you know, no, no poem is worth a friendship. This is a quote I always think of. I can't remember who said that, but, um, so, so how do you think about that? Do you, do you write things and then not publish them because you don't want to upset the person they're about or, or where do you fall in that continuum? Yeah, I, I don't, I don't publish, publish it if it, it looks like I'm on, you know, I'm not being, I'm not being fair, Mm -hmm. but it goes in my journal. Boy, you know, that journal is a lifesaver. You can write it there, but not, not publish it. And I'm very lucky because, uh, my first book, um, thank you, Greg Kosminski, um, I said to my family, here's, this is, this is going to be a book. And if there's any poem or any line that you don't like, let me know. Hmm. And, and my family mostly said, uh, I mean, and that's what it's been mostly all through these books is go for it. Hmm. And they don't read it. They say, I don't want to read it. Um, and that's given me a lot of freedom, which, which other people who have the material, their material is relationships also, but they don't have that freedom. So I know I'm really lucky in that. And speaking of luck, I, I remember reading that I was giving in college uh, before I'd published much of anything. And after the reading, uh, this man came up. I didn't know him. His name was Greg Kosminski. I remember he was holding by the hand his little preschooler, and he said, you don't know me. My name is Greg Kosminski, and I'm going to have a, a press someday, and I'm going to publish your work. Oh, wow. <laughs> and that, of course, is Greg from Backwaters Press, who we published a bunch of times. We should have him on the show. I, I don't know why we have it yet. But, but yeah, so that's interesting. So then he founded Blackwater's Press after that point. What, when was that? What Do you remember how long ago? It seems like that was 95. Mm-hmm. And um, then he's retired now to yeah. uh, mm-hmm. California. And... Um, his books then are under the umbrella of United, of University of Nebraska Press. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool to go from um, you know just someone's aspiration in the crowd to being housed within the University of Nebraska. That's pretty neat. Um, let's see. So Vicky Miko asks. Um, she says, "Ooh, beautiful country music." Um, question, please. Do you write lyrics? Um, there is a sort of a country music feel to to the topics. And uh, do you do you do lyrics? Um, no, but one of my poems was set to music for a high soprano hmm. um, bird's, bird song and uh, that sound that the cardinals make. Anyway, that was wonderful to me um, that the songwriter did that because I don't. I don't. I wish I had music. I, I wish I knew music and so on, played it. So that was really fine. Um, I appreciate that. That's a great compliment to me. Thank you. Um, so, you know, one of the things when I read, you know, your poems like in your style, that, that that's plain, honest style or what resonate with people. Um, at least in our, in my experience, and I have metrics for everything too, because we have websites and you see what, what gets the traffic and what doesn't. Um, and those are always the most popular poems, it seems. Um, and then the ones that are very abstract and, and hard to follow and maybe more exciting for an editor to read because we don't read, you know, because, you know, when you read 50,000 poems every month or whatever it is, um, you, uh, 
anything that's like strange stands out. I think that's something that editors, a sort of a, a problem we have is that, and then, so it's good to have somebody else to, to sort of keep us grounded a little bit, but, but readers of poetry really respond to sort of narrative and, and, and things that are, that are comprehensible. I mean, to put it in a way, um, why do you think that that people stray from that, from that style when when people love it and it's good for your own health? Like we've talked about um, why, why do you think, um, you know, people write in, in other styles than that when when what what's most popular is like a Billy Collins style, for example? I don't know. Um, well, um. Let's see. So we have um, maybe time for two more poems. Let's do one poem, another question, and in, in, in between, and then and, and the last poem. So two poems left. Okay. Um, 7374. Okay. Bad news, good news. I was at a camp in the country, you were home in the city, and bad news had come to you. You texted me as I sat with others around a campfire. It had been a test you and I hadn't taken seriously, hadn't worried about. You texted the bad news word, cancer. I read it in that circle around the fire. There was singing and laughter to my right and left, and there was that word on the screen. I tried to text back, but as often happened in that country, my reply would not send, so I went to higher ground. I stood on a hill above the river and sent you the most beautiful words I could manage, put them together, each following each, under Ursa Major, Polaris, Cassiopeia, a space station flashing. I said what had been said Many times, important times, foolish times. Those, soft, those words soft-bodied humans say when the news is bad. The I love you we wrap around our need and hurl at the cosmos. Take this, you heartless nothing and everything. Take this. I chose words to fling into the dark toward you while the gray-robed coyote came out of hiding and the badger wandered the unlit hill, and the lark rested herself in tall grasses. I sent the most necessary syllables we have after all this time, the ones we want to hear. I said home, I said love, I said tomorrow. That was bad news, good news. Once again from the track The Whales Make, uh, Marjorie's new and selected poems that just came out. Um, can you talk a little bit about your uh, your use of line breaks? Because um, you're you feel like one of the more casual line breakers. Um, like there's some, you know, a lot of people don't don't want to break after a, a subject and then the verb comes. You even have a few times where you have the um, the break after an article, which is like one of those things that people say, "No, you can't yes. do that." So yes. um, so so why why do you think you can't? Like, who gives you the right to break after an article? <laughs> Isn't it a good feeling when you get to do that? <laughs> yeah. Um, I call that word the first word in the next line. Mm -hmm. uh, I call that the saddle for some reason. Interesting. I don't know. And 
And I, I like that word to sometimes be a surprise. Like maybe it was a surprise to me when it showed up. Um, I like that word to, to sit there because maybe sometimes it has weight to it or not. And, um, line breaks really are some of the fun, aren't they? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like the playing like a puzzle or something. It's like the, the, I don't know. It's like doing a crossword puzzle or I don't know. There's some, some way that you're playing with it in a way that's more delightful than actually generating the content. Yeah. Yeah. So, so do you, do you, what do you think of when you're, when you're lineating a poem like that? Um, like, like, do you, do you have a certain length or it had anything to do with the pacing or is it just organic and you don't really think about it? And it's just where it feels right. Different reasons for different times. I know. Um, yeah. If the line really sticks out there a long way, that's good unless you don't want it to draw that kind of attention to mm -hmm. itself. And, um, of course, uh, the fun part is when you're reading it to somebody, you can just run right around that line break. Mm -hmm. The line break is for the eye. And when you're reading it, you don't have to uh, follow that. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's see. So I think we should probably wrap it up with one last poem. What do you want to read last? Oh, let's see. Hmm. Um, here's a poem I, um, oh, what to read? Um, you're no help. Tim. you're no well, help at all well i i can't pick the poems i mean i have my i have poems i like a lot but but okay um i'm open to this one so i'll read it this is uh 165 okay there are just some moments when you really feel like you love this person Loving her in the mountains. Hard climb behind us. We clown around on the tundra, my daughter and I, laughing. The sleeves of my too big sweater swing limp beyond my hands. She pushes the bandana over my eyes. I dance for her blindfolded, goofy. The water in the canteen sloshing with my spinning and twirling. My daughter laughs until no sound comes and she must sit voiceless on the rocks to recover. On this day in this place, the peaks standing watch, I love her and I can only dance it, my old shoes quick as the feet of a deer on the grasses. Uh, just another beautiful poem, Loving Her in the Mountains, uh, from the track The Whales Make. So now that this new and selected poems uh, book is, uh, is out, um, what are you working on now? Like, do you um, do you have other stuff that's in progress? Um, I, do you take a break and do more of the Pobiz stuff to promote it? Um, and, and does that interfere with writing? Uh, what, what do you What do you got on on tap next? I'm working on a manuscript. Um, just what what works for me, and I, I think for other folks sometimes too, is you write and write, and then you look at what you've got and you pick out what you consider your best, and then see what kind of uh, uh, maybe themes that would be for a book rather than um, I, I don't think 
well, no, here's, here's what I'm going to write this time. And, um, I, I like having a project and yes, ProBiz does kind of, uh, take you away from that, um, from the writing sometimes, but it's, it's as part of it. So mm-hmm. you have to do some of it. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you, uh, you were doing some of it today and being a guest. Thanks Marjorie for, for being here and, and sharing your wonderful poems. People just are, are loving all these poems in the chat window. Um, and they are really moving and, and just so they just feel so real. I, I love reading them. I'm glad you could be a guest and congratulations on the new and selected book. It's wonderful to see. Thank you, Tim. Yeah. Have a good day. You too. Bye. And so it was Marjorie Sacer. Uh, and with her uh, book here, The Track the Whales Make, you can find more of Marjorie's work at her website, which is easy to find. It's poetmarge.com. Um, that's poet, M-A-R-G-E.com. So find uh, Marjorie Sacer's book there and um, all of her other work. And, uh, and and do check it out. It's just a wonderful poet. Everybody loves these poems. So, um, so pick up a copy if you would. Now we're going to take a quick break and we're going to go to... Um, the open lines. And uh, this week's prompt was to write a poem about one of your ancestors. So if you have one of those, um, you can do the open mic, open lines instructions. You can email your poem to, uh, oops, that's the wrong button. This one. Email your poem to openmic at rattle.com right now so I can read it on screen. Um, if you can't read it or join us, I can just read it for you too toward the end of the show. But if you can join us, uh, you have to join either over Skype if you want to do a video call or by phone. Um, the Skype numbers uh, or Skype ID is Rattle Poetry. Just type that into the Skype search bar. Send me a chat message and say, hey, I'd like to read a poem. I will uh, put you in the call list and I'll call you back when it's your turn. The other option is to call in by phone, 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Just let it ring a few times, then hang up. That'll put you in my call list and I'll call you back within the hour to share uh, your poem. And like I said, if you just want to send it to, I can just read some. I do that toward the end of the show. We try to make sure to get all the callers on so we have different voices, but uh, but I'm happy to read too if, if, you're, if you're shy or something like that. So don't be. Now I'm going to go to quick break, stand up and stretch, and I will be right back with the open lines. back thanks for letting me stand up and stretch uh, we have a bunch of people lined up to call let's see we have um uh, dick westheimer we have um guy chambers uh san hu lee first time caller tr paulson's here good to see you Jared philip stern guy chambers vicky nico's back um for a first time caller like sean who um i should also let you know that uh you have to two things i'm calling from the future so you have to um mute your 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 uh, stream that you're watching now like x out of whatever you're watching this either facebook or youtube when i call and just talk to me through the uh the phone or skype because otherwise uh there's a delay and it gets confusing um and also you have to have your poem in front of you to read too because because of that delay it's like an old-time radio show where there's like a fcc delay but it's not that it's it's bouncing around the internet um, but you're, you're, the screen that you're watching right now is not going to be showing the poem at the same time as you are. So you can't read it off the screen, even though everybody else can see it at home. So have the poem next to you uh, when I call you. So the prompt, like I mentioned for this week, was to write a poem about one of your ancestors. And uh, Megan didn't come up with a poem. So by default, I actually have the better poem this week. So congratulations to myself, uh, which is not saying much. But 
this is uh, the great chain and this is a just a true story and um i think it's kind of self-explanatory so so here's the great chain every year she'd tell the story of pierre lever our great 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 however many greats grandfather who changed his name to green a blacksmith from Quebec, he joined the war and helped build a great chain across the Hudson to block the British ships. Each link the weight of a man, hand forged and floated over the river on a series of rafts, a great feat of engineering. And what the great 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 however many greats grandchildren loved was the greatness, the words themselves a great chain of sound that we clucked around the kitchen table. Great great great, how far the giggling could go. Years later, each of us would find ourselves strolling through the old fort, past the crumbling walls and batteries, the musket slots, cannonballs scattered in the dry grass, and finally find the chain. Three links of it, five hundred pounds of pig iron stretched between a pair of pylons like a heavy velvet rope. We'd read the little plaque it guarded, all the names that are never named. We'd touch each link, round like the heads of children in our hands, thinking great, 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 each of them great. This is my little poem for Pierre Lever, um, who is, I couldn't find him listed anywhere, but um, it's my grandma's story. And she was the town historian, so I think she knows what she's talking about. Um, anyway, that was where their name came from. Lever is green in French, and after the revolution, um, Pierre changed his name to Green because he loved America so much, and that's how we became Americans. So, and that's how we became Green. So that's the Timothy Green story. Um, and I kind of I kind of like Lavera better, but but that's fine. So uh, let's see what you have for us. Let's call up. Uh, we'll call T.R. Paulson first. Uh, then we'll do the first time caller, Sean Hu Lee, and then we'll do Vicky Miko. Um, we'll do Guy Chambers, Philip Stern. Yeah, we'll do a lot of people. So let's call up. Uh, let's call T.R. Paulson. So um, see how it goes. Hey, T.R. How are you doing today? Hey camera i can never find the elusive camera yeah it's that button next to the hang up there's a red hang up and there's a green or a blue hopefully camera button <sighs> stupid <laughs> well that's okay, okay if you want to just no, do i voice. was on the um that was on the wrong screen oh there you go yeah hello good to see you um so i have two sonnets to read that i hope the link works yeah they do they're from uh mezzo common how do you say yeah. that? Mezzo, 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 Kamen. mezzo, Kamen. I actually, I actually looked up the pronunciation this morning <laughs> to make sure I got it right. Yeah, well, I didn't know it was coming, so I couldn't, <laughs> but I always um, wonder. So yeah, the journal is, um, the editor is Anna Evans, who is a frequent rattle contributor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We love Anna. And I, I wish you would do her. I don't, have you ever done her as, as the main guest? on? No, we guest? should. That's another great, great suggestion. We definitely should. How I do the guests is if they're in the most recent issue, I, I pull them up. So, and then I kind of go back through other people who have new books. So they're the, the two things. Oh, um, she has a couple books and she's the newly, um, I don't know if she was a tr contributor to Metzo Kamen, but then she was promoted to editor and I don't know whether to it's really a promotion. I mean, you would know that better than anyone. <laughs> no, I, I actually it's a, think it's, it's a, a thankless they, they job. They threw more of a burden on top of her back, I think. But yeah, Anna Evans really cool. So we should, we should definitely have her on. Um, um, but it's a journal that um, is pretty strictly formalist by formal poetry by women. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm a big fan of um, journals that cater to certain demographics because it takes a lot of the guesswork out of submitting. <laughs> That's true. 
I mean, if they don't want my poems, I don't want to waste time submitting to them. But of course we do anyway. My acceptance rate is like, I don't know, 2% right now. <laughs> well, I think that's, that's pretty normal. Um, so you have two sonnets here. Um, follow yeah. requests and on the sports page. Why don't you go oh, ahead? I need and... to find myself again. I was looking at some of the other great work on it. Okay, here I, here I am. Follow requests. On Instagram, you see them when you check those posts and pictures, different names. You might see the man whose ring you wore, that blue speck of stone, or the sister who used your lipstick to write her name on closet walls, or the roommate who sat with you the night your boyfriend fibbed, or that cousin, hand on belly, whose due date looms like a deadline. Here, a truce extended from a forgotten spat, flashbacks diminished by new shots cropped and died with little clicks. You recall a runner stumbling at the finish line, a purple prom queen dress, fiddlesticks on carpet, and the girl in coral shorts, the one who cartwheeled down the clover hill alone. Yeah, beautiful. I always love a sonnet. And, uh, and the sports page is the next one. On the sports page. In the center photo, the big linebacker's arms encircle the nimble tight end's lean hips as they fall. Beyond them, in the stands, a woman sits beside her husband, Team colors, rain-soaked green and gold, envelop them. His mouth gapes open as if to yell at a child about to touch a stove's hot element, as if his team's offense, chilled by the wind, is his child, losing as shown above by bright numbers. The woman's face turns to the side, to the man whose brown eyes met her husband's blue ones over tailgate beers. Last week in the tool shed, Brown eyes late. Brown eyes held hers as she came, and he crushed her cries. Another excellent poem. Yeah, thanks so much for sharing both. I mean, I always love sonnets and um, and sports poems too. So it's always it was fun hearing your work. Thanks, thanks so much, Tr. Yep, thanks for having me. Have a great day. Thanks for a great rattlecast too. Yeah, yeah. Take care. Have a good one. It was Tr. Paulson. Um, who can find a few poems in, in Rattle of Hers too? So uh, we have a four or seven nine number as well. Let's try. Uh, Sean Huli. Hello. Hey, Sean Huli. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. How are you doing today? Thank you very well. Thank you. Uh, where are you calling from? I'm calling from Huntsville, Alabama. Ah, excellent. Well, I'm so glad you could join the show. What was it that you wanted to share? Um, I wanted I wanted to share uh, two poems today, and the first one is um, the prompted. The ancestors. Yeah, did you uh, did you email it to me? I sent you. Uh, I sent you um, in Skype. Oh, in Skype. Let me let me try to pull it up. Yeah. Just one second. It opens. There we go. Ah, great. I see it. Okay. So you have portrait of an Asian woman, um, and then another poem, I believe. Here, yeah. Let me download that one too. Okay, and, it, and the ancestor. So, is there anything you want to say about about um, the first one before you read it? Yeah, the ancestors is uh, about uh, um, how the ancestors will view the current uh, climate uh, and the global warming issues. Mm-hmm. And um, I just fear. Uh, sometimes I fear. Uh, strangely, I fear the ancestors always live with us. I mean, it's a very strange feeling when I hug my dog, for example. I feel like uh, my ancestors are living within my dog, inside my dog. Oh, wow. And uh, I'm uh, Chinese, but uh, I'm also Korean descendants. And there's a folk tale about uh, 
the moon and the rabbit mm -hmm. in order to honor my ancestors, Korean ancestors. I also have reference set in my in my poem. Yeah, go ahead and read it whenever you're ready. I'll, I'll put it up for everybody at home. Okay. The ancestors. The ancestors live in warm Siberian soil in spring with rising carbon dioxide and methane. The ancestors sing in deforested Amazon rainforest, moonlight rain in the wildfire. The ancestors roam in the yard with Canadian geese, white-tailed deers, and hellebore flowers. The ancestors bloom in blue, red, and white coral leaves. They hide in the Fosicia bush with cardinals. The ancestors play Nintendo with children and chickens in the Sunday afternoon in the kitchen. The ancestors cook shidake and the central result for my 54th birthday. The ancestors climb ice in the Boulder Canyon in January. They tell me to watch out for blackbirds. The ancestors travel to the moon. They live with two rabbits and a flute made of moonstone. Oh, that was a beautiful poem. I love that repetition of the ancestors there. That's great. And then uh, the other one is a portrait um, portrait of an Asian woman. Is there anything you want to say about that before you read it? Yes. So this was uh, uh, accepted by Jay Junior. Mm -hmm. I think someone mentioned in, in your podcast about Jay Junior. She said, oh, you know, you can submit it to Jay Junior, and this is for justice. You know, so I submitted it, and this is my first uh, poem got accepted for publication. Oh, well, congratulations. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah, coming out this spring. So I cannot imagine. So I'm telling everyone my poem is got accepted and my colleagues, they call me now poets. So um, it's, it's great. So I wanted to, this is my first time I'm reading this poem. Oh, excellent. Well, I'm so happy to hear that. Go, go ahead. Yeah. So portrait of an Asian woman. One. On the road, we met an Asian woman. We look at her facial mask. Two, from a distance mirror in the physical therapy room, I saw the reflection of an older Asian woman. Her dyed black hair was thin and frail like mother's. Three, oriental women always have a modest body. Someone shouts at an Asian woman from his Toyota pickup at the Walmart parking lot. Four, an Asian mom, a tiger mom, no excuse, no defense. Five, Alex, my Aikido instructor, asked an Asian woman, where are you from originally, when she said she was born in Cleveland. Six, an Asian woman has become a vice president. A half Asian woman has become a vice president. Seven, Mulan, Mulan, a little boy calls an Asian woman, her Cinderella shoes made of bamboo glass. 
Oh, wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing both those poems, Sean. Who, and congratulations again on, on having that first publication. That's just great I to hear. My first publication. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for joining us today. Hope you can do it again soon. Thank you. See you. Take, take care. That was Sean Hu Lee with uh, Portrait of an Asian Woman and the Ancestors. Very cool stuff. Let's call up, um, let's call Guy Chambers. A lot of times we call Guy later in the show. Let's call Guy a little earlier this time. Hey, Guy, how are you doing today? Not bad. How are you doing? I'm doing great. So what do you have to share with us? Oh, I got this one poem here. I actually was publishing my book called Flying Kites in the Moonlight, and uh one thing I say with that, with this poem here, is like everybody, you're, you always uh, have traditions in your family, and that gets passed along and along and along. Sometimes it gets changes, so that's sort of me about this here. And uh, so I call this shoes. Okay, hey. here it goes. Yeah, go ahead. Shoes. Walking onward through the green acres, barefoot flowers, headstones holding time. Find shoes beside a grave. Not strange, but new. Mysteriously. Echoes suddenly inside. Shoes that walk many of trails. Walked a different way. Sized to my feet, I slipped them on. Feel the mold to the soul. Refreshing. Listen to the laces. As I tighten them up, standing proud of within them with the special gifts, but feel the closing of another. Life's a journey, need something to walk with. Don't know where I'm going, but it feels right. Walking away, walking as I, walking that made me. Oh, that's that's right. it. Yeah, thanks, guy. I love that. Don't know where I'm going, but it feels right. Hey, wonderful stuff. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that, yeah. guy. Yeah, it's great listening to all your show here all the time. Listen to all I mean different people, how they come up with different ideas with the poems and the different styles. I do a lot of reading across different countries and that, and I still see it's just unbelievable what everybody comes up with something different. <laughs> it, it is amazing. That's that's what keeps me here for for 20 years or or so. so. Yeah, get going yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay but, then. Yeah, take care, guy. Always a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, talk you. Bye. Bye. Okay, let's call this first-time caller a 479 number. Hey, this is Tim with Rattle, and you are live on the Rattlecast. How are you doing today? Oh, great. Thanks for calling. Yeah, and who am I talking to, and, and where are you from? My name is Margaret Dornis. I'm from Arkansas. Excellent. Well, I'm so glad you could share uh, or join us today. And I see you have an ancestor poem for my ninth great-grandmother, uh, Susanna North Martin. Uh, do you want to explain a little bit about um, what what this uh, what the poem's about? Yes. Um, well, I discovered doing some genealogy that I had a ninth great grandmother, Susanna North Martin, who was one of the last group of witches who was hanged in Salem. Oh wow! Wow, that's something amazing yeah. to find. Yeah. Yeah, it was really, I don't want to say it was cool because, you know, it's not, mm -hmm. but it was really interesting to find that out. I had a a cousin who was just a keen genealogist, and she said, oh, we, well, we have this one ancestor on this line, 
And um, so I started reading more about Susanna. Mm-hmm. And I've always been interested in that period of time um, through Hawthorne and obviously through um, the Crucible. Mm-hmm. And, um, and actually, one of the characters in the Crucible, who is a major character, um, I think her name was Goody Good. She she was the character that uh, Arthur Miller used mm. in his play, but she was one of the people that was hanged alongside my ninth great grandmother. Oh wow! Yeah, there's so many much great literature about the Salem witch trials, and there's that yeah. new, new theory that there was a bread mold that that uh, that was growing in the bread that they had. And um, was oh making them gosh, have like yeah. hallucinations, and I don't know if it's true or not. But um, oh but I read a novel a few that. years ago based on that that theory that it was the mold of the bread that was making there was a hallucinogen. Um, so that I don't know, I don't know if that's true, sense. but the whole there's so many fascinating angles and things to talk about. Well, you know, they, dread, they they didn't drink water; they drank all the time. So mm-hmm. you know, yeah. Um, yeah. But there, there was a really good podcast a couple of years ago about it. I forget who did that, but it went into great depth about all these different theories. And the one that um, was prominent was the fact that these women were targeted because they had land. Hmm. So, you know, it all gets back to the money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it usually does. If you, when in doubt, check the money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's hear this poem yeah. from my ninth great grandmother, Susanna North Martin. Yes, she died uh, July 19th, 1692 in Salem. How is it that it took so long for me to find you? You who all along were hanging in plain sight from the branches of my family tree. You, born of English parents, packed off to this new land when you were just 18 to seek religious tolerance and freedom. You, who married a widower, settled down to help him raise two daughters, taught them like your own eight children, the way to recite their Bible verses backwards and forwards. You, whose husband's death left you penniless in old age, preyed on by those who called you infidel, devil, strip-searching your withered body to check for signs of witchery, before tightening a rope around your neck and tossing you in an unmarked grave. How was I to know until I found you that you are part of me, that I am part of you, that one day you'd appear to show me how times have changed yet stay the same to tell your story no matter what others might think of you, Susanna, no matter that they cannot see. 
Oh, that was wonderful. Thanks so much for sharing that. A really interesting story and, and a great poem about it. I, I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. I'm so happy to be on there. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope you can come and, and join us again with uh, more poems in the future, too. Yeah. I, I've only listened to a couple of your um, podcasts and enjoyed both of them very much. Excellent. Yeah, well, I'll help you talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Yeah, so that was uh, Margaret Dorn, Dorn, Dornhouse. I can't remember how she pronounced it. But let's add uh, Margaret into the contact list before we move on. There we go. So we know who it is next time. Um, let's call... Hey, Angela Gardner's here. She hasn't been here in a while. Let's call up Angela. Hey, Angela. How are you doing today? Good. I'm going to actually turn on my camera. Hold on. Okay. <laughs> I was, it's so funny because I'm like, I was just about to do something. I'm like, well, and then that's when he'll call me. So. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. I, know, I always had, know the worst timing. <laughs> no, no, not at all. I do. That's It's more me than you. <laughs> okay. I think you can see me. Yep. There okay. we go. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Great Yay. to see you. It's been a while. How are you doing? Uh, yeah. Good. Sundays are always tricky for me because yeah, I figure of, the um, earlier time is tougher. You, you got kids and stuff. They're always doing things. Oh, yeah. Like, I was just at a game. So, mm -hmm. like, I'm like, I rushed home. I'm like, oh, I can make it this time, maybe. Excellent. Well, I'm so <laughs> glad you did. What did you want to share? Um, well, I was trying to think. It's funny because you have the ancestors thing. Um, I mean, I could share two or I could share one poem. Yeah, feel um, free to do two. I think we have a good amount of time today. So, if you want to do well, two. Yeah, um, I guess, um, I guess I could share the one that I wrote for this past week if we had a pancake party okay sure yeah. um, mm -hmm. so what was this and about then, oh and then what well what happened was is that in san francisco um this guy was uh, had a flyer saying that um he's he's uh he's getting weird so he needs to make friends and he it's just about connecting with neighbors really because the name, like he's him and his family were there a year and everyone with COVID, I was just thinking like, yeah, like we really, you know, it's like everyone's trying to step out in the world again. And I kind of feel like I've been isolated myself. So it's kind of stepping back into what better, what better thing to do with food and breakfast. Breakfast is always like <laughs> the way that we all kind of connect, you know, and, and, you know, I miss going to like the breakfast places and stuff mm -hmm. like we haven't really been able to. Um, so it's just about like if our neighborhood had a pancake party, too, and starting to reconnect with the world and people and neighbors. Yeah, I think it's something we definitely need. Like we forget how valuable just that even the small connections are, you know, that that we make between people and just just being able to chat a little bit helps so much for the, you know, community feel that, that we're living in, which we're supposed to. That's how we evolved. Yeah, but it's now it's like, you know, I people are pitted against each other. And, you know, if you're wearing a mask, not wearing a mask, and that had something to do with it a little too. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, kind of facing a new normal, like just getting back yeah. to normal and, and facing what kind of normal we're really going to be in. And I think we're, we're getting there. It's, it's gonna it's taking a little bit longer. Yeah, well, why don't you go ahead and read this if I if, uh, if we had a pancake party. We had a pancake party. The drip, drip of batter. A circular shape fans out on the flat pan. Little bubbles rise. Scrape and flip it. The ladle scoops again. 
there I was, standing in line with my plastic fork and plate. I waved at the purple-haired woman who lives in a house across the street. She walks her two beagles. A pink faded sign still hangs in her window. It says, together we stand. I try to remember when I sat in a crowded room with dirty spoons to eat runny, wet eggs and mouse-shaped pancakes or steal my son's leftover bacon. In the air, it's steam-filled vanilla mixed with chocolate chips. I'm at the griddle. It's my turn. I look at my neighbor's faces at their uncovered mouth and noses and the flapjack syrup on their chins. Oh, I love that. Thanks so much for sharing that, Angela. And we got the, the pet cameo in the back there, too, I, which is always I, wonderful. I, I, I'm, usually, I'm usually not here. So <laughs> I, and I, I, I felt his presence as I was reading. I was like, okay. So that, that's and always then, a highlight. Yeah. Did you want to read another one, too? Yeah, I was because you're doing an ancestor mm-hmm. thing, right? Yeah. Well, maybe I should read a different boat. I submitted like a couple weeks ago. It's it's actually about my great grandparents. Oh, perfect. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. So, so what uh, is there anything you want to say about it, or you just want to read? Well, what it was is I always kind of think you know there's a better way everyone can come in in the country and. I, I was thinking about how my grandparents came versus how, you know, I just feel bad. Like, you know, you hear all these stories. This particular story was uh, third, 30 migrants pretty much drowned in this. Um, they did drown. Um, I, I don't even know, remember if they had any survivors, but they they were on inflatable raft and, you know, it toppled over and they all drowned. And, and it's just like, I just... You know, I guess I don't know much enough about it, but I do wish that, you know, the way my grandparents came in, you know, I just wish there was like a way we can figure this out where we won't have so many lives lost and, 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 you know, people are so desperate to come and it just, it's, and my, my grandparents, I were probably just as desperate. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder what, what we can do. You know, it's just so sad to see so many lives lost where, you know, that's just my. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Definitely. Well, why don't you go ahead and read it? A different boat. A different boat. A different boat. My great grandparents rode on the salty waves, had a shared cabin with circular windows, and from the wooden deck, they saw the woman with a flaming candle who stood tall with the names of people. Their names will be hers. The youngest children who were a few loving embraces from their birth, would belong to her. We never knew what they were escaping. Maybe the men in charge took their dreams of planting seeds. But they didn't feel the spray of fish splashing against the side of an inflatable raft, choking until breath was lost. Well, yeah, yeah. thanks so much for sharing that different boat, Angela. Always great to see you and, and have, have these poems. Yeah, it's good to see you finally. It's been months, but uh, <laughs> I'm like, I can come. Yay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, great. Okay. Well, I hope you get to again soon. Talk to you later. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Yeah, Angela Gardner with uh, a different boat and uh, what was the other one? If we had a pancake party. I love the, the idea of a pancake party. Okay, let's go to, um, should we have Richard Westheimer? We have Philip Stern, Bev Wendell Atherstone. Um. Audrey, Audrey Freeman, too. Oh, and Jerry Stephenson down below. Okay, let's do um, let's do Dick Westheimer next. Hey, Dick, how are you doing today? Hey, Tim, I'm doing great. It's good, good, 
good to see you. What a, a lovely reading today. I could have heard, heard uh, uh, Marjorie's poems all morning. It was great. Yeah, it was wonderful reading the, the book last night. They just all the poems feel like you're with a real person, which is a strange thing to say. I keep coming back to that, but it feels so authentic and honest. Uh, yes, yeah. I, I just love her work. Uh, good, good, good stuff. And it was great to hear the. Um, I, I have to confess that the um, uh, Wendy's poem when I read it this morning, it just. I'm not a great reader of poems, but hearing her talk about her process and talk about how it unfolded for her really. Um, made it come alive, and I'll, I'll get to reread it in quieter time. Interesting, yeah. Uh, so, what did you want to share today? Um, so, um, I have an ancestor poem which I sent to you on um, uh, uh, through email, and I'll read um, at the times of dryness and death okay. as the. Um, um, I, I, I actually sent two poets respond poems this week, but I think it was a productive, productive week. Yeah. It's always good to see. I'm, I'm jealous that, you know, I, I squeeze out one when I'm lucky. Yeah. Well, you've got a day job. I'm that's, sort of, that's true. that's true. So which one do you want to do first? Uh, I'll, I'll do, I'll do the ancestor poem. Okay. Uh, and, and quickly to, to, Couch it. There, there are many theories about how Ashkenazi Jews, who are mostly dark complected, darker complected like me, with you know dark features, mm -hmm. uh, how some of us ended up with blue eyes. And so this is just oh, one, mm -hmm. one, one theory. Um, and I, at the bottom of the page, I have actually this is the one. All of my family, except for this one, only goes back like two or three generations on our family tree. But this one threads back to the um, 17th, middle of the 17th century. And this woman, girl, Hanel, was born in Poland, Lithuania, which was a huge, it's not Poland. It's it's Ukraine, Lithuania, you know, that whole area, uh, but died in um in Germany, southern Germany. So this is this is entirely made up from those two facts and the and one other. Birth of the blue-eyed child. Hanel, swaddled in rags, nestles in the corner of the ox cart, sleeps in a reed basket lined with dowry clothes. Her father trudges beside, mourns all he's lost his wife in childbirth, his home burned by Cossacks. The child's blue eyes remind him of the deluge, of the horse riders who sacked the synagogue, shredded Torah scrolls on the altar where they raped the women before their bound men. The price to leave Belz, a match for Hanel in Rimbach, mayor, already an old man, would have his bride, and the begats would begin from there. First Fredel, then Levi, then Teish, ten times over, to me, and then my own raven-haired Hannah, who bore her own blue-eyed child. Yeah, good stuff. And I love the, the, just the listing of names is always such a, I don't know, like a musically powerful thing. Um, yeah, there's a, there's a list at the bottom, and you can see when they emigrated to the U.S. by how the names change. Levi, Tesh, Joseph, Hannah, Louis, Emma, Edward, Sally. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, changed from five generations of traditional Yiddish names to 
American names. Yep, that's how we do it. It's like Laverre de Green. Right, same thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so the other, uh, in times of dryness and death, um, uh, there is uh, you know, new data which shows that the uh, drought in the western U.S., southwestern U.S., as if you don't know from forest fires every day uh, or all the time is uh, is the driest period, not just it's not the longest period, but it's mm -hmm. the time of dryness as measured by tree rings. Um, yeah, I'm going to have to look up this because I uh, we had long, long droughts of like a thousand, so, hundred years. So I'm wondering. Yeah, I so, know, I, I'd like to see this study. I'm going to look it up later. It, it, it's about the aridity. <laughs> and so like there's a definition of mega drought, which is 20 years. <laughs> so let's start with that. And then they looked at it and said, which looks driest according to this? And going back 1,200 years using both living, you know, recently dead trees and also uh, timbers that were used to build ancient things. They, they have some measure of tree rings. So... Of course, we don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm going to look up the data because I'm, I'm curious. I'm always, you know, very curious about this topic, given where I live up sure. in the mountains and the, uh, and the, the trees everywhere. There, there, were, there, were, there were mass migrations due to drought in the second century mm -hmm. and in uh, the 12th century. So, like, there have been serious dislocations of, of people because of extended periods of dryness. The one in the 12th century was 200 years. Mm. Of so, yeah. Um, so yes, it's complicated. Uh, in, in the times of dryness and death, one, 800 years before present, when did we know it was time to leave? It was when every day was ash and sand, when we no longer heard the verdant birds join in the morning chorus, when the costas winged west and left us songless left us with dry mouths, unable to whistle, too alone to sing. The thrashers were last, their scythed bills rattling in tongues, a sign that even the dead among us recognized. We, of our people, who remained, heard the echoes, followed the insistent whit-whit-wheat, their final warning away. No one looked back. All was salt. Ahead, we found wa rock that wept water, like tears we'd been too dry to shed. There we carved our homes. There our children didn't know the times when birds drank dust. There we remembered our dead less and less as the rains washed us of our loneliness. Two, 20 years after present, and here again, we live in the dry times, our rivers muck, our birds flown, our gardens bone and brush. We are captive behind our walls, built of faucets and electric outlets, screens and talking heads. Now the pipes flow with rust, our devices dark, our pantries empty. And on the other side, the long walk. We've no creatures to track to some bountiful place, so we follow each other. None of us wise. We walk in circles. There's no place to go. We should have known before we set our homes on fire. Yeah, great ending. Good stuff as always, Dick. It's always a pleasure hearing you read. Uh, thanks uh, for thanks. Yeah, 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 thanks. Have a good rest of your day. Good to see you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
uh, Dick Westheimer with um, In the Times of Dryness and then the uh, the Ancestor poem. Um, let's call up Vicky Miko. Hey, Vicky, can you hear me? Oh. Yeah, you, you're on the yeah, air. <laughs> How you doing? I'm still listening to... Oh yeah, turn off the turn off the yeah, stream. I'm, we can't yeah, hear I'm it though. Still listening to Richard. <laughs> hey Richard, <laughs> wow, that was that was amazing. I'll have to um, tune in again. Um, it's it's great to be back here. Um, Richard mentioned the uh, the drought. Well, I don't remember who sang that song. Uh, it never rains in Southern California. It pours. <laughs> um, so I'm thinking about uh, the last hailstorm we had here. Oh yeah, what when that was? Um... That was a couple weeks ago now. I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, perfect weather, and then all of a sudden this big old thunderstorm with hail, and um, so it kind of inspired me to write this song. I um, I've missed so much. Um, uh, Sunday mornings are really bad. I've been helping out a friend babysitting, so it's kind of anyways. Well, so I tried. Today, yeah. Thank you. Um, I uh, I listened to Lester Graves Graves Lennon mm-hmm. um, interview, and I thought I would give um, a Lennon lyric a shot. Excellent. Yeah, so, that's a, it's a great form. It's tough to do, but I love the it, sounds yeah. of it when when somebody can pull it off. <laughs> well, I hope I can pull it off. <laughs> anyway, um, here goes. Okay. Spring fever, some kind of promise comes in spring. Maybe birth on a fertile mossy stump, maybe. Maybe death on a parched stony plateau, maybe. Potential unfulfilled, the bristly mallows, latent potential. Half-lives on ambient rangelands, the sleeping warts half-lives under winter's tree fall where the moldboards last furrowed under, where bluets lie stagnant, not knowing where they once were. Wind, oh, the wind, all those playful currents timed by the wind. Once the milk vetch occupied time with digger bee oddities, once spreading like cartwheels over clovered meadowlands, spreading, landing on barrel brinks where wild sedges once made their landing. We are all landing somewhere, tenants with nascent notions, aren't we? To line up for some kind of inspection, we judged the leggy salsify too. Comes the rain, oh, the sweetened rain, how it forever comes. All its crimped edges of yellow greens, crystal faces, wrinkles and all. Grass, oh, the rise, wheats and barleys awaken in the snake needle grass in their dreamlike pomp where all fevers heighten after a long sleep in. What is spring here for, if not to sweet-talk our indulgence? For what? Itself, says the wind, the rain, the sun. Spring likes to please itself. Oh, that was excellent. I love that, Vicky. Then some wonderful photos, as always, too, of the, the spring, spring blooms. Um, yeah, beautiful Thanks. stuff. I, I just love those London lyrics, and you did it really well. I mean, when it's so hard oh. to write, but then once you do, the the music of it comes out wonderfully. I love that. Thank you. That's great. 
I love everybody's poems. Thanks. Yeah, take care. Bye, Vicky. Good to see you. Bye-bye. That was Vicky Miku, of course, with uh, a Lennon lyric, uh, Spring Fever, Some Kind of Promise Comes in Spring. Um, let's call up um, Beth Wendell Atherstone. Hey, Bev, how are you doing today? Hi, Tim. Great, how are you? I'm doing good. Love um, the show today. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, a, a fun very show. Very nice. As always. What do you have to share with us? Well, first, I have a comment about the um, Witches of Salem. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that uh, that fungus on the rye is called ergot. Ah. And it grows in poorly fertilized rye. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I, I couldn't remember the details of it, but there was a really wonderful book. I, I can't remember much about it, but I remember I really enjoyed it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, so I was trying to, I was going to try and write something for the prompt in regard to my great-grandfather, but I had too much information and couldn't do it in time. Mm -hmm. So uh, instead, I'm going to talk about my grandmother, and I sent you two poems, so my grandma's farm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, so when I was a little kid, I spent a lot of time with her on the farm. So I thought this kind of captures her. Great. Okay, my grandmother's farm. I want to help collect the eggs today. Please, Grandma, let me. Won't you say I may? I'll stay by you and hold your hands so tight. Among the ruddy hens, I'll stay in sight. Bev, those hens will peck you while they're clucking. Rooster's tails are not for feather plucking. Graham, how come old honk can walk among the hens? Bev, he's an... I think I changed it. <laughs> Bev, he's a battle-worn soldier. He can fend. <clears throat> the hobos mark their farms along the track where they can work for coffee and a snack. They come each summer, work on many farms, and ride the rails and sleep within the barns. Grandma, I'll go rap at the back door. I'll pretend that I'm a hobo poor. You'll pack a sandwich for my stick and kerchief. Then I'll gather eggs and won't get into mischief. No, Bev, no hens or eggs for you, my little tyke. Go play with the barn cat or ride your father's bike. When you're as old as I am now, my dearie, you'll be quite wise and see all things more clearly. <laughs> that was great. Very fun. Thanks for sharing that, Bev. Yeah. And then I thought, <clears throat> last week I wrote my two poems about all the conflict we were having here in Canada, mm-hmm. both on the Coots border here in Alberta, down to Montana, to uh-huh. Shelby, Montana, where where the trucks were blockading the borders, and of are course, they, are they clear in out Ottawa? There too, or because um, I saw that they were. Well, I'm going to tell you. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> and in Ottawa, around the Parliament Building, and then um, on the Windsor uh, Ambassador Bridge between. Windsor and Detroit, mm-hmm. and um, yeah, it's it's all cleared up, and um, our Prime Minister Trudeau imposed emergency measures, mm-hmm. yeah, um, which changed things quite a bit, <clears throat> and allowed the government to take away the insurance on the trucks so they couldn't be couldn't be used. Oh, so yeah. I thought I'll give you a little update, and that's I quickly wrote it this morning. 
And my default form is rhyming couplets because I seem to be able to do that quicker. Okay, from conflict to quiet. A week ago, barely seven days, our border was wrapped in barricades. Trudeau imposed emergency measures, which revealed many legal treasures. Bank accounts of those were locked, whose trucks vital trade trading roadways blocked. No one was harmed, just pepper sprayed. Remaining protesters arrested, carried away. So auto parts could flow again from Windsor to Detroit, so big auto could continue its workers to exploit. Thus is rebellion quelled in Canada, the peaceful kingdom. Excellent. Thanks for that update. Uh, the first-hand poetry reporting from Canada. Always appreciated, Bev. Thanks. That, that's it. And I, I stole the Peaceful Kingdom from David Fromm, uh, who's in the U.S., and uh, he was reporting today in Canada. He calls Canada the Peaceful Kingdom. Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, very good. Well, thanks okay, for thanks so that. much. Yeah, always a pleasure. Talk to you later, Bev. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye. The Bev Wendell Etherstone with, uh, with two poems. And let's, um, who haven't we talked to yet? Let's call, oh, Audrey Friedman. Um, and we have, uh, oh, Jerry Stephenson, too. Okay. I think that might be the last two on the list, and then we'll read some other poems as well. Yeah. Okay, let's call up Audrey. Um... Hey, Audrey, you are live on the air. I think I heard myself in the background, so why don't you mute that? Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're good now. Okay. So, yeah, okay. so thanks so much for joining us again. Uh, what do you have to share today? I love this community. I am enjoying it so much. Oh, I love it, too. I'm so glad we have one. I mean, thanks again for everybody out there for, for joining us every Sunday. Oh, I, it's it's really beautiful. The readings today were phenomenal, as always. Um, I have a, a high bun that I wrote about my grandmother. Excellent. So here we go. Okay. Water. Uh, let me. Uh, okay. Are we ready? Yep. Go ahead. Water has a thin skin. My 80 something year old grandmother is at home in the surf at Rockaway Beach. The waves tower and crash. But she is like a white-haired mermaid, penetrating the swells beneath crests, re-emerging with triumphant grins. She knows that water has a thin skin and that she doesn't. Is she playing with Neptune, who feigns wrath to bring Anna's inner child out in one of her last Julys? Her skin is a tanned, cracked leather, thickened by sun and memories of her girlhood in Belarus. The pretty Jewish girl had to toughen up to survive carrying milk cans down dirt roads in the shtetl, to sidestep the big bad wolves, to survive the pogroms. And then she had to toughen up some more to survive my gentle father's marriage to my raven-haired mother. Wind shear, riptides, 
180 mile per hour gusts, seas above mean high tide. Excellent. Uh, great, yeah, great look back at history. And, uh, and, and you'll see that the guest next week is going to be uh, Roberta Beery, who's the Hyben editor of, um, of Modern Poetry. So we'll be talking to her about Hyben. Uh, good foreshadowing of that. Thanks for sharing that. Oh, my pleasure. Have a very good rest of the weekend. Thanks. You too. Okay. Bye-bye. Yeah, that was Audrey Friedman with Water Has a Thin Skin. And then, um, oh, we have Philip Stern, too. Don't forget Philip. Okay. So we got to find, sorry, I'm kind of going in the, usually go in the order the calls were received. This time I end up going in reverse. So sorry about that. But um, here's uh, Jerry Stephenson. Hey, Jerry, how are you doing today? I'm doing extremely good. Are you ever not doing good? <laughs> well, I've, I've been thinking about that a bit. Uh-huh. I'll, I'll have to get back to you, though. I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, do you want to push the camera button? Oops, hang on here. Yeah. My feed stopped for a second there. Okay. Okay. You good? I, I think I'm good now. Can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you fine. I just can't see you if you want to push the camera button. Oh, Where's the camera button? Here it is. I keep doing this. I got to get my game together for this. Well, it's worth the wait. <laughs> Thank you. Where's the camera button? It's uh, next to the hang. There's a hang up, and then there's a mute, and there's a camera button in the middle. Camera Toward the button. bottom of the screen. It should be. I'll try this one here. That's mute, and it's over here. Oh, for God's sake, record. Huh. I got yeah, chat. I don't share, share screen? That no, you don't want to do that. Okay. Hmm. hmm. It's it should uh, be I don't know well let's uh let's just well, listen oh, let's to your just voice. let's just yeah. wing it here okay that's fine so uh, all right so whatever you want to share okay here's what I got for you I went back to do this thing and I wanted geez, okay what I wanted to show you was a book but I can't show you because you know the camera there's the book you can't see it sorry but what happened was I went I've got some intrepid relatives I really do with an explorer a couple of poets by the way too mm-hmm. but, uh, too complicated. Okay, so what I did was, uh, mm-hmm. okay, I got, hang on, just give me a second here. I got this other screen driving me crazy. Okay, maybe that's hang why on. you can't do the camera. Okay, let's try this again, sorry. No, no problem. Okay, view, do, 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 do. I got, I got your delay in the background. Oh, dear. I'm going to, I'm going to take, uh, I'm going to blow away uh, YouTube, uh, YouTube. Well, that was cool. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Check. That's better. Yeah. Oh, I feel like a new man now. <laughs> we didn't hear oh. you. It was just in your headphones. But uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Here we go. So, anyways, what happened was that uh, we got some really intrepid relatives and all this stuff. Except, so does everybody else too. And I read a lot of stuff and a lot of different things in that. And I got our the people that they come from that are different people too. Eh? Mm-hmm. So I thought, maybe I should a little wink and a nod to them. So that's what I did. So I'll give you the wink and the nod that I'll fill in a few holes because it'll leave a few holes in. It was intended to. Very good. Okay, go okay. ahead. Now, hang on. I'm going to change my voice a bit, and I'm not going to I'm not going to sound like Led Zeppelin, but I'll quote them first. But I'll try to speak with my Icelandic accent. Interesting. I got a little bit of one. Okay. Come from the land of the ice and snow, where the midnight sun and the hot streams flow. Led Zeppelin, the immigrant song. Floki found our home in 860. He landed there, still to Rome. He visited Paris and London, so many places under the sun. No mosquitoes in our new home. 
Constantinople was kind of like a second home if you turn the Bulgarian. They raised pensions there. They raised the ground there. The rest not comfortable with most of our visitations as we toured the world. When Hadra slammed his hammer down, the followers of Thor picked up their hammer, dropped into Scotland, then to Dublin, found a few Swedes to take to their new home. The new migration increased the population about a thousand years ago. Leif got lucky on vacation, laying claim to a faraway potential home. Time slides by, and the Norse curse and itch of travel got as Ashka got cranky. 20% said goodbye to Canada, with a K, Ashley, to start again. We all had to change our names. Icelandic still used the patronomic naming system. And we met mosquitoes again. Actually, the story of the Icelanders, how they left Norway, went to Iceland, and did their thing from there. So I thought it was kind of thing. That is very interesting. Fun background, uh, Jerry. It's always cool to see. And, uh, and fun poem. Thanks for sharing it. Hey, you're very welcome. Thank you very much. Again, really good show today. I love the part of the process. Oh, that's always so good. Tim, have a good week. Yep, you too. Take care, Gary. We'll see you. Bye-bye. Bye. Now, Jerry Stephenson with Come from the Land of Ice and Snow. I can't do accents, unfortunately, but but that was great. Next up, let's read. We'll try to play this. Um, last time, I think it ended up being too quiet, but we'll see if it works. This is Carla Schwartz's poem, Lifeboat. And she sent an audio recording of it. So let's try it out. This is um, Lifeboat by Carla Schwartz. Oops, wrong one. There we go. Lifeboat. And if I can do this right, the audio as well. Lifeboat. If not for a psychopath and then young soldiers carrying out his orders, rifling through apartments, searching in closets if not for a hamper large enough for my grandfather to hide in, if not for my grandmother, her years of escape planning, first shipping belongings, furniture, dishes for safekeeping, before ever leaving, by foot, by train, by car, but not before witnessing the night of smashing, of burning, if not for their ship full of refugees, if not for the visas that permitted my family to disembark in Cuba, before those without papers were sent away, many to die, if not then for the confluence of the usual, I would not lie here, rocking gently on the water, if not for a boat. Oh, excellent poem. This poem was written by Carla Schwartz and originally published in a journal called Silkworm in 2019. Excellent. Well, there you go. That was Carla Schwartz's poem, Lifeboat from Silkworm. Excellent poem and a great reading of it, too. Thanks for sharing that, Carla. And yeah, if anybody wants to, um, if you can't make it live, you can send an audio, too, and I can play it like that. Um, thanks, Carla. Let's see. Here's a prompt poem from Kashyana Singh, who's going to be the main guest on um, uh, March, I can't remember, March 3rd or, or 5th or something like that. Um, she has a new book out. And... Um, this is, um, oh, The Woman Woman by the Door is her newest collection. Um, the, this poem comes from a place of memory and specific situations um, with her her grandfather, Nana Papa, and specific situations with him, but it is universal. The poem was originally written a few years ago, but the content was edited quite a lot recently before he decided to use it in the air. So here's um, Nana Papa 
Here we go. This is, um, once again, Cassiana Singh's poem. Nana Papa. Reader's Digest, Huckleberry Finn, Britannica Encyclopedia, Great Gatsby, all the Agatha, Agatha Christie novels, Sidney Shelton, Jane Austen, Collected Shakespeare, Keach, Rudyard Kipling, Kushwant Singh, of course, Charles Dickens, The Old Man and the Sea, shining copies of Misha and Soviet Union stacked together, an unabashed Koran, too. Then he grew older, his wife, my nanny, passed away, and aloneness arrived in abundance, an awkward reader now, voracious. Nana still remained a voracious reader, perennially marking the edges of pages, sometimes signing his name. Often he left them open, too. Nana retreated for hours into his chair, still holding her scent in his, its cushioned shadows. He dusted each book and saved it inside a walnut chest, then kept an empty perfume bottle. Now, a lender from a reader, his mahogany-walled library became a display of video cassettes. I remember the alchemy of that room, emblazoned by a vision, an addiction dotted with names and movies, lettered spines ascending floor to ceiling, white jackets with black borders, handwritten names meticulously aseptic. I would sit cross-legged, not in a pan, uh, pad mezana, in that room each rowdy summer as it gathered an entire brood of cousins binging on mangoes scooped into eating contests, drowned with spicy ambrosia of buttermilk, our veins now drunk, laying claim to vanilla ice cream shaped like the bricks of Augustus. That summer afternoon after him, I stole four VHS cassettes, signed, also entitled, Myself, to his deluxe gramophone and a rattan rocking chair. They say that the lifespan of videotape is 25 years, then pixelation sets in. A great poem that was Cassiana Singh with a poem about her grandfather, um, Nana Papa. So thanks so much for sharing that, Cassiana. And in two weeks, is, uh, Cassiana is going to be the guest. I'm talking about her new book, Woman by the Door. Um, let's see. And then we have two from Carlton Johnson as well. Um, here's a poem from my book, A Symbol of Time. This is Aftercare. And once again, this is Carlton, Carl Johnson. Um, also known as Carlton. Aftercare. Aftercare by Carl Johnson. Tonight, as the long dark night fills my once horizon, I breathe, still as the air passes from lungs to trachea to mouth and out then back in again, each one no less vital than the one before or the one after. I learn the value of a breath and breathing late, with regularity, up and down, rise and fall, in and out. The breathing keeps us balanced and true. I love it when I travel back to Baltimore in the winter, and I can see my breath, little instant clouds shrouding my person before settling on a blade of grass or a stem. Each whisper-thin breath may have started with you or you or you. Each breath is a link in a long chain, a chain of care, seeking its ancestor back to the first mud puppy gasping for a breath of fresh air. Great sounds as always. Thanks for sharing that, Carlton. And one more poem from Carlton. Um, this is the Candy Bomber. Um, and there's a, it's a new Potter Spahn poem. So the story is here. 
Um, Gail S. Halverson, the world's candy bomber, dies at age 101. And here's, I'll put it on screen. This is a photo of, um, of uh, the candy bomber, Gail S. Halverson. And um, the article here, he was part of the greatest generation and was known around the world as the candy bomber. Or Uncle Wiggly, Uncle Wiggly Wings. On Wednesday evening, Gail Seymour Halverson died. Oops, uh, where do we go? Should I put this on screen for you? There you go. Um, Gail Seymour Halverson died at age 101 at Utah Valley Hospital, where he was being treated for an unexpected illness. Um, so that's Gail Halverson on the screen there, and here is Ted Guevara's poem, or no, um, Carlton Johnson's poem, "The Candy Bomber." The candy bomber. It was always about the children, the children eager with smiling faces behind the great wall of silence, with great arms outreaching, beseeching the heavens for peace from being locked away behind concrete and barbed wire. Then Gale would arrive, higher than spire, spilling forth shoots from bomber as it sailed over Berlin some 30, 60 years ago. Over the course of the airlifts, he launched 23 tons of chocolates headed homeward to the ever-smiling faces of children he might never meet. Oh, very interesting. The candy bomber is literal. He literally uh, dropped candy over East Berlin. Very fascinating. Thanks for sharing that, Carlton. Okay, and that is going to be uh, the end of the open lines. Really quickly, um, <laughs> well, I guess this is the psyche for today. It's the same story that... Um, and I have to apologize in advance for this, but it's the same story that um, uh, Wendy Vilock was writing about in her Poets Respond poem. And um, here's here's a psych who about those birds falling, um, really flying into the ground, which was strange and fascinating to see. Um, but I have to apologize for this, this uh, psych who. Hard ground, blackbirds jump into water sound. Hard ground, blackbirds jump into water sound. Of course, that taking after the basho um, frog jumping into the water sound. Um, anyway, that is your Saiku for today. And that is the show for today. Thanks, everybody, once again for joining us. It was a real pleasure, as always. The prompt for next week is going to be this. It's the year 2222. The year 2222. What kind of world do we live in? Write a poem about it. So it'll be 200 years from now. It's a bicentennial in the future. Uh, what kind of world do we live in? Write a poem about it. That is your prompt for next week. And um, that is going to be your show for next week. For this week. Uh, next week's guest is going to be Roberta Beery, who we mentioned. Her book that came out not too long ago, The Unworn Necklace, is one of my favorite books of haiku. It's just a wonderful look at sort of a marriage um, crumbling apart, I guess you could say. Um, it's a great in, a, in the form of a haiku sequence. As we mentioned earlier, Roberta is the um, Hyben editor for Modern Haiku and a really well-known, much-beloved member of the Haiku community. Um, she's in Ireland right now, and she has been for years because she left before COVID on a, um, a tour promoting uh, um, Haiku uh, in other places, among other places, Ireland. So um, that's where she ended up. And that'll be Roberta Beery, Rattlecast number 133, Sunday, February 27th, the usual time, noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. And uh, your prompt, it's the year 2022, or 2222, right? Uh, what kind of world do we live in? 
write it poem about it. So that's going to be your show on Rattlecast 132. Hope to see you then. Hope you have a great weekend. In the meantime, and I will talk to you soon. Goodbye.